0: south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air talk to bob now 210-599-5555
1: but you better dial quickly because uh well mike alexis and carolyn are already in there ahead of you and uh it's just uh it's another warm morning in san antonio sitting there sweating just a little bit i've uh, got to take a little personal time off and we went out and Set in the cool air out on the West Coast, saw some beautiful redwoods and ah, just lots of other fun things. But good to be back, good to be here to talk to you this morning. And uh, you know how I hate to keep people waiting, Mike, Alexis, and Carolyn, my first three callers. Mike's first in line. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob, and uh, happy Father's Day. Well, and the same to you, sir.
2: Thank you, thank you. I've got a couple of questions. i got a Mexican fan uh, palm tree.
3: Uh Uh-huh.
2: And um, it's approximately 10 feet tall, uh, circumference about 16 inches.
1: Okay. You mean circumference or diameter? uh, You mean how thick it is through or how thick it is around? Circumference is the distance around, right? Yeah. So if it's a 10-inch circumference, it's um, roughly 3 to 4 inches in diameter. Okay, uh, but um, I see others that, you know,
2: have like two- and three-foot uh, distances, or, you know, circumference.
1: Yeah. Uh, why Why is that? Well, there's more than one tree that's called the Mexican fan palm. Most of them are Washingtonias, but even among the Washingtonias, there are Washingtonia filifera, Washingtonia robusta, they're just a, Mexican fan palm encompasses a fairly wide variety of palm trees. It doesn't just refer to one type. And yours is uh, probably one of the more slender uh, varieties. I would think it is probably uh, Washingtonia. Um, oh, Robusta would be my guess. But uh, it's just, uh, the reason is that there are just many different plants which are referred to as Mexican fan palms.
2: Okay. So, for instance, uh, my removing the palm fronds as, as they die has nothing to do with it getting thicker.
1: Absolutely nothing to do with it. No, sir. Okay, dokie. Uh, second question. I have five
2: great um, myrtles. Uh-huh. The oldest uh, is the tallest. It's about 10 feet tall also. Mm-hmm. And... uh the others, uh, the four out of the five, are, are blooming, and this one has not yet begun to bloom. What could be the problem?
1: It could be an older variety. Are they all getting the same amount of sunlight and the same basic water and fertilizer and things? Oh, yes. Okay. Then it is probably just a varietal uh, thing. The older varieties, they many times didn't start blooming until the middle of summer. They don't. There's still plenty of them around that have very few flowers until we get even into July. A lot of the newer varieties may start blooming as early as late April, early May. Once again, it's yes, just a question yes. of what variety of grape myrtle you have, and there are about a 1,000 of them out there now. Yeah, okay. Um, in my mind, uh, supposedly this one started uh,
2: blooming, you know, like in May, and here we are in June and it's still nothing. Maybe, uh, hopefully in another month, it will start to bloom.
1: Oh, it absolutely should if it's out in full sun, and uh, you've had some good rains this spring. It's kind of turned off hot and dry lately, but uh, it certainly should. The weather has been cooler than typical. I never say normal when I talk about weather, but it's been cooler right. than it typically <laughs> is <laughs> up until a few days ago, and that may also have something to do with uh why it isn't blooming quite you know as early as it may some years that's one of the fun things about keeping a a diary or you know a plant log or whatever and just once a week or so just sit down and jot a few notes in it about observations around your landscape and then you know down the road you can look back and say wow in 1922 it did such and i mean in 2022 it did such and such and then in 23 it was this and now in 24 it's something different it's you know, just the same sort of thing I I do for my vegetable garden, what varieties of tomatoes I planted when I planted. Uh-huh. And that way I can I can look back and see if I'm having an unusually good or an unusually bad year. Look back and see how it compares to years before and uh I actually what I have in my garden I have an old rural mailbox the kind you see the kind of still the kind I still have along the highway. But uh okay. a friend of mine in the uh in the hardware business had one that was bit up so he gave it to me and I just put it on a post in my garden and that way I can leave my you know my little pad and my pen that I take notes with down in the garden and I'm not having to run all the way back up oh. to the house if there's something I need to write down so a little tip cool. that might uh, might help you out all right fantastic uh, well have a great day let me go spoil myself with some uh, IHOP uh, pancakes <laughs> <laughs> You're making my yogurt and granola sound a little bit plain, but uh, you get out and enjoy, Mike, <laughs> and uh, and I will look forward to our next visit. Thanks so much. Hi. Right. right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right. Next in line is Alexis. Good morning, Alexis. Hi. Good morning. Good morning.
4: I have a I have few a questions. The first, the first is, is there's, a there's a 10-foot diameter, diameter. sort of Set off garden in the yard of the place I bought a few years ago. That a woman really gardened it. Very and
3: there good. Were a lot of
4: irises and things that came up. And a couple of years ago, I thought, let me put a pecan tree in the middle of that.
5: <laughs> okay. And, uh, yeah.
6: So,
4: uh, and I talked to the people and said there were a lot of irises there. Could the old bulbs be a problem, or the rhizomes really? And uh, anyway, the. The pecan has struggled, and I finally started got somebody to start digging up some of the stuff around it. And there seems to be uh-huh. rhizomes about a foot down. Mm-hmm. The garden was definitely abandoned for like ten years. Uh huh. And I don't know if this, don't know this is a problem.
1: No, it shouldn't be a problem at all. Pecans are interesting things. Uh, the probably the thing that hurts a young pecan tree most is staying too wet. And a lot of times starting out, I caution people against uh, planting things that take more water around a pecan tree because if you're trying to keep begonias going or if you're trying to keep even some of the salvias going, you're probably going to be keeping your pecan tree a little too wet unless you're, you know, down south where you have uh, sandier soil where the water just drains so th- through so quickly. Uh, pecan trees... Really, their first year of life, uh, or first year in the yard, maybe even the first two years, the ideal way to garden would be to soak the pecan tree very thoroughly when you water it, and then don't water it again until it's dry a couple of inches deep. Now, in the meantime, if you want to take your hose and just spray up and down the trunk of that young tree, it'll absorb a great deal of moisture directly through the bark, and this really helps get them off to a good start. But they're probably pecans and red buds. they're a handful of plants that just really don't like uh to stay real wet and that can be that would be my guess other than you know weather related issues as to uh why it could be slowing down uh the uh, severe cold that we had uh hurt a lot of pecan trees uh, i have yes. not really seen any of them that were killed, but a lot of them are the still other a little are too- not
4: survive Mark. Yeah. okay. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, the like I say, when you water them, water it very, very thoroughly. Um, I hope when you plant it or whoever planted it for you, uh, you know, you have to dig a narrow, deep, deep hole to plant a pecan tree. It's got a taproot, unlike uh, most of our woody trees, which has more of a spreading root system. It's not a true taproot, but it, it functions pretty much like a taproot. So pecan always gets planted in a narrow, deep hole. And, um, uh, again, if if it's just not doing what you expect, it's most likely a water issue. I would feed regularly, even at that stage where you're just spraying the bark and the limbs. You can always use a liquid fertilizer like Grow or a good one like that, and with the water that you're spraying on the trunk. But uh, pecan trees, trees are notoriously slow. To grow, and you may just be a little impatient with it, but if it if it just isn't doing doesn't seem to be doing well, then you always judge how well the tree's doing by looking at the newest growth on the tree. If the newest leaves coming out are looking good, uh then your tree's in good shape, and it's it's going to do just fine oh, no. if the if the new growth looks bad, then you've got something actively going on but uh Part of it is just the pecan trees grow slowly, and we're all impatient when we put a tree in the yes, ground. We we want a big tree immediately, and I'm sure you planted it high to where the root flare was, uh, you know, right up at soil level. So maybe what you need is just a little more patience.
4: But what about the and all these rhizomes around it? They're, that's not a problem. I'm just trying to thin out no, some of the no, not coming not up
1: and... not in the least. Uh, in fact, okay. the rhizomes may be helping the tree in that, you know, the most of the water that goes out of the soil isn't through evaporation. It's taken up through a plant and released through the leaves in something we call transpiration. And in the case of a pecan tree that likes to stay on the dry side, having those iris uh, rhizomes and leaves around that tree, that's helping to keep the soil from staying waterlogged, and it's a benefit to the tree rather than a problem.
4: Okay, that's good. good. All right. right. Uh, One Uh, one very quick question. And then maybe another. another. We have also in the backyard a bunch of of oak trees trees above where we do container gardening. gardening. Mm -hmm. And And if if no one pays attention, sometimes these containers containers have a layer of oak leaves, dried oak leaves in them Uh with the little balls on them that that get quite thick. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's... It doesn't seem to kill anything because it's been time. no, sure. no died. But is it a problem? Is it kind of a problem? No.
1: That's Mother Nature's way of rebuilding the soil. Old Malcolm Beck used to say, remember that those trees are taking up nutrients from way down deep in the soil that plants up on top can't get to. They're putting those nutrients in the leaves and then dropping them back on the surface of the ground. And so that's how Mother Nature build soil and renews the nutrient supply is uh, by having those leaves on top and decomposing. Now, never let them get so thick that you have trouble watering, but uh, it's just Mother Nature's way of mulching things, and it's not a problem at all.
4: Okay, that's what I was going to add. Great. So then even if there are a bunch of them in a Meyer lemon tree, which leaves are starting to curl,
1: um, uh-huh. that's
4: probably not because of the oak leaves?
1: It's probably because of wind and changing... <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> wind and changing humidities and things uh, has yeah. nothing to do with the oak leaves.
4: Good. Okay. So we'll keep an eye on that. Thank you, so Thank you so much.
1: Let me let me tell you one more thing to always remember about water, and that is that water doesn't hurt or kill anything. I mean, if somebody took and sucked my head in a bucket of water for 10 minutes, water wouldn't yes. kill me. Lack of oxygen would kill me. So what happens when we water too often is that the water drives all the oxygen out of the soil and then the plant roots suffer because they don't have any oxygen. Plant roots are like us. They have to breathe. They take in oxygen to give off carbon dioxide. Top of the plant is the reverse. Top of the plant where the green leaves are it takes in carbon dioxide and gives off oxygen. But the roots have to have oxygen to survive and if the soil stays so moist that the oxygen level is, you know, much lower, the oxygen is just driven out of the soil by the water, that's what's going to hurt your plants. Uh, there's no such thing as too much water, but there very definitely is such a thing as too often. When you water, water very, very thoroughly, but then don't water again until the soil's dried to the proper point. Follow that rule and you'll never have a problem with watering. All right. Thank you so much. so much. It's my pleasure. You get out and have a wonderful Sunday. Thank you so much, Alexis. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Let's see. Yeah, we better stop and take a break and uh, and I'll get to talk about my friends at Medina. And <clears throat> once again, want to remind you that nutrition is so important to plants and that's what Medina has specialized in for all these years, both with their products like the Soil activator and the Medina Plus, things that help the plants get nutrition from the soil. And then their actual fertilizers, dry fertilizers like the growing green liquid fertilizers, like the two has to grow products, has to grow plant, has to grow lawn, their liquid fish formulation, now available in quartz, I'm happy to say. Used to just be able to get it in gallons. Now you can get it in quartz as well. But Medina has specialized in natural fertilizers, feeding plants the way nature intended. Medina also packages lots of great products like top-quality molasses and liquid seaweed. And Medina is just a great company that's been serving agricultural interests as well as homeowner interests for well over 50 years now. Right here in our area, their plant is located over in Hondo, Texas. If you want to see the complete list of all the fine products they make, go to MedinaAg.com.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550, KTSA and FM 1071.
1: All right, back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. It's going to be Carolyn and Yolanda and Sylvan. Carolyn is next in line. Good morning. Good
7: morning. Good morning. I, I have a squash problem um, I've never had before. I have a tatoumi and spaghetti and uh-huh. both of them have very thin stems. You, right. you can't really inject them. But right. what the squash uh, vine borer is doing is doing something where the leaf meets the stem. It looks like like it does when you have a squash borer come out of a, you know, and it's killing the, all the leaves. It's not, it can't get in the stems, but it's it's landing on, on the tip, you know, on the uh, leaf that... Uh, you know, where it connects to the stem. And, and, and I, can't, you know, I don't know what to use, you know.
1: And um, you're sure it's not squash bugs? You're sure it is something like a boar, something like a caterpillar of some sort? Oh,
7: I see those little orange uh, boards flying, moths flying around.
1: Okay. Um, the BT, you know, with especially with a little bit of molasses to make it last longer will last for at least two to three weeks uh effectively from the time you spray it on the plant. So I'd be getting some, you know, Bacillus thuringiensis, Caterpillar killer, whatever name it's sold under, a yeah, product that it. has, I yeah. Now, not BTI, but BT, and oh, right be right. sure, yeah. yeah, be sure to add about a tablespoon of molasses. I'm saying this for the yeah. benefit of the 10,000 other people listening, even yeah. though you're an experienced gardener, but um and, and just, you know, spray, put it on the calendar, spray about every two weeks, coat the plants pretty thoroughly. The molasses will keep the BT active unless, unless or until you get so much rain it washes off. But if it is the larvae of any type of moth or, uh, whatever, like as the, uh, as the squash vine borer, borer is, uh, once that caterpillar takes one bite, of the material that's coated with Bt. It stops feeding immediately and dies within a few hours. So that's going to be the best, you know, 24-7 protection. Now, if you actually see little caterpillars, uh, spinosad or spinosad soap even better will kill them on contact. But, you know, unless you have time to go out and, you know, be searching the garden daily, and you certainly have things to do other than that, um, then just mix up the Bt with molasses, spray thoroughly, and that should take care of the problem.
7: Okay. Uh, you know, I started out, I lost all of my uh, yellow squash and zucchini. And then I looked underneath, uh, I, I saw that I had a stink bug on there. Not one uh-huh. stink bug. They were covered with...
1: Oh, yeah. Yes, uh, they're actually uh, they squash so- bugs, Yeah, which were a type. Now those the young ones, you know, the young ones are bright red with black legs, and the oh, uh, yeah. yeah, the spinosad soap is the best thing I found to control those. But um, like you've observed, they can reproduce in large numbers very quickly.
7: Oh, it, yeah, look at the bottom of the leaf and all those little baby, uh eggs were on all the. You mm-hmm. know, I just have to start over, so I had to start over with squash and uh, so i just wanted to make sure i i'm, I'm going to start over with the spaghetti squash and the tatumi because uh you know uh, the the vines don't look so good
1: well so I'll, re- I'll replant BCD. yeah replant the tatumi and the uh, especially the spaghetti do those first because they take much longer to produce than things like zucchini and crooknecks and patty pans things like that those guys are going to be producing for you in 30 to 40 days. Your spaghetti squash and the longer season squash may take 90 to 120 days. So get those replanted first because they're going to be the ones stretching into the fall before they really start producing. That's why up north they call them winter squash. So get those planted first and then you've got lots of time to plant more uh, uh zucchinis and the crooknecks and that group of them.
7: Okay, thank you very much.
1: Always good to talk to you. You have a wonderful day out there. Thanks, Carolyn. Okay. Goodbye. All right, next in line is Yolanda. Good morning, Yolanda. Hey, good morning. How are you today? I'm sweating from, a bit from the heat, seeing as how I've been in a much cooler climate for a few days, but it is I Texas know, and it is I summer.
8: <laughs> I hear you. Same here. <laughs> yeah.
1: it, it's fun Ray, waking up in the redwoods with fog and 55 degrees, but reality's a little thing that just keeps refusing to go away when you try to stop believing in it. So it's good to be back home, but uh, uh, that hot weather sure sneaked in while we were gone.
8: Oh, I know. It was terrible, and it's and it's going to be terrible, but, you know, what can we do about it?
1: <laughs> I certainly don't want to move, move to the West Coast to stay, so uh, we'll just go back to wearing shorts and T-shirts instead of flannels and jackets.
8: There you go. Very good. Same here. I do have a couple of uh, questions for you this morning. Good. Um, I had a um, pecan tree. Uh, a couple of years ago, that we had to cut down because it had a lot of gurgling, and at the time, it was gurgling was. So we had to cut it down, and I guess it was like maybe 14 years old. Uh huh. And so now, two years later, after the cutting, we see this branch coming up on the side that's now maybe we let it grow, so maybe it's three feet tall.
1: Uh huh.
9: So
8: my question is, will it now produce a new pecan tree?
1: It will, but it's always going to be weaker, more susceptible to storm damage. Because if you can imagine the old stump, this is growth coming out from the side of the stump. And it's, it's, it's always going to have those parallel wood fibers to what's already in the tree. And that's just a weak joint that a weak, uh, that a strong wind is much more likely to break over. So, um, it, it would, And if you had a way to support it to where that trunk would just never move back and forth, which might be easy while it's a smaller trunk coming up. But ultimately, Mm -hmm. when it makes a big top, you know, the the pecan tree growing on its own roots, standing right next to it, will stand up to an an 80-mile-an-hour wind without damage, whereas this one that is just growing off the side of the old stump, uh, that thing's going to be flat on the ground. So uh, in answer, the answer to your question is yes, it would make a new tree. Uh, would I leave it there? No. I would replace it with a whole new tree uh, that has a much, much stronger uh, trunk and root system.
8: Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Well,
1: now, if it, were, like- if it were something that was going to stay small, like a crape myrtle or you know, some other low-growing tree, bush, whatever – wouldn't be nearly as much of an issue, but a pecan tree, you know, those things want to get 40, 50, 60 feet tall, and when they get that big with that many leaves, they they are certainly more prone to storm damage. So sorry yes. to not tell you what you want to hear, but that's, yeah. that's what my experience yeah. tells me.
8: Yeah, no, um, the, uh, I'll take your advice on that one. I don't want to have an issue with the, the storm and, you know, you know, to a uh, rock wall that we have. So, sure. very good advice. I appreciate that information. Thank you so well, much. Well,
1: my pleasure. Anything else I can help you with today?
8: Yes, I do have one more question. And, go right um, ahead. And it is about the crepe myrtle. I have uh-huh. this crepe myrtle that was ma- majestic a couple of years ago. Beautiful pink flowers. I don't, it was just loaded. And so last year didn't do much. So this year, now it's full bloom, and it's majestic now again, but it looks like a red rocket.
1: Well, Pretty red. Little. now the variety called dynamite, uh, which looks a lot like red rocket, the big difference in dynamite and red rocket, red rocket has red leaves as well as reddish flowers. Dynamite has greener leaves, but dynamite... The the flowers will be different colors. I've seen dynamite with, you know, half the plant was red and the other half was pink. Many times they'll have a cluster of flowers, sometimes even multiple colors in one flower cluster. So I'm not sure there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I I think that probably, you know, and, and dynamite's a wonderful variety, but I think somebody... You know, sold you the, or, or told you the wrong name when you got your crepe myrtle. Just sounds a lot more like dynamite than red rocket. But, uh, and when we have uh. the cool temperatures, when we have the very variable temperatures, colors will vary. The cooler it is, the more intense the colors, especially the pinks and the purples will be. But, um, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with your crepe myrtle. And I think it's just, you know, one of these varieties, that can have a little variation in flower color.
8: Wow, well, that is interesting. Yeah, it's full bloom and it's just as red, red, uh, blood red as it can be. Whereas yep. a couple of years ago, it was just <laughs> such a beautiful, sharp pink color.
1: <laughs> it's uh, uh, it's amazing what they do. Dynamite will sometimes have even almost white flowers on it, so uh, it, it's odd. Oh, wow. I would have expected two years ago a combination of red and pink, but uh, mm-hmm. um, it it. You know, it's certainly possible that it's as long as it's the same plant, it's there's no reason, yeah. And and grape myrtles aren't grafted, so it's not like you know something different came out from the rootstock. Crape myrtles are um, almost exclusively grown from cuttings, so uh, um, I, I, I think it's a varietal thing. But as long as the plant is healthy and as long as it's a nice color. Just sit back mm-hmm. and enjoy it. And, of course, be sure the root flare is exposed. That's the most common problem in right. crepe myrtles is buried too deeply. But uh, I think yours just uh, decided that with a little bit different spring, because we were much, much cooler this spring than we were two years ago. Now it's turned, mm-hmm. certainly turned hot. It's just you've got a little different color coming out.
8: I know. And so I I told my husband when I saw that, I said, Oh my goodness. I said well I wonder if the red rocket was pollinated, you know. No. Pollinated.
4: That
1: wouldn't have anything to do with it. That <laughs> that might affect the next generation, but you know, if uh if a Great Dane breeds a Chihuahua, it doesn't change the parents, but you're sure going to get some oddball puppies. But uh and that's the same oh way the the fact that a a plant is pollinated by something of a totally different color or even, and and of course, you know, you never cross a squash with a grape myrtle, but different squash (laughs) varieties, different grape myrtle varieties. Cross-pollination is very common, but it doesn't affect the parents. doesn't affect the plants you have.
8: Okay. Okay. Well, that had been my explanation yesterday. and My husband bought it, so I said, oh, no, let me check.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm glad you called and wish him a happy Father's Day for us you as well. Have
8: a happy Father's Day, okay?
1: Thank okay. you so much. Bye. Will do. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. All right, Sylvia, or Sylvan, hang on just a minute. Let's get a break in here. I get to talk about Phanix Nursery and Garden Center. Speaking of crepe myrtles, Phanix is really stocking up on the uh, on crepe myrtles now. They get up to 100 different varieties through the summer months. Everything all the way from little miniatures that only grow 15, 18 inches tall or maybe just a little taller than that, all the way up to things like, uh, oh, Basham's Party Pink. Uh Those things can be 35 or 40 feet tall, and Fenix has them all and everything in between. Even the new blackleaf varieties, uh, Fanix is just uh, sort of your headquarters for different crepe myrtle varieties in all different sizes. They've recently gotten another shipment of uh, fruit trees, citrus especially. They have all those plants that qualify for the Saw's Water Saver Rebate Program, it's just when you have 10 acres of ground, you have room for lots of different things. Uh, they've got in all the different summertime flowers. Won't be, but here another few weeks, we'll start stocking up on fall vegetables over there as well. I, there's so many reasons to go to Phoenix. They carry all the organic gardening supplies I love to talk about from fertilizers and mulch and compost. And now some additional things, the uh, Ego lithium-ion battery-powered outdoor equipment, the Traeger pellet grills, and all the supplies. So many reasons to go see fannix Right over on Home Green Road, where they've been for almost 90 years, open seven days a week to serve you. Check them out online at Fanix, F-A-N-I-C-K, South
0: Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071.
1: All right, back to gardening. Sylvan's going to be up first, and then Mark... Good morning, Sylvan. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Happy Father's Day.
10: Yeah. Happy Father's Day to you, too. Thank um, you. I, I have a problem in part of my yard that uh, I planted the Mexican petunia, and I didn't fence it in underground, so of course it spread <laughs> everywhere. Certainly. And, yeah. And so I, for years I've been trying everything, vinegar and orange oil, over and over again, even digging up a lot of it, but it comes right back uh I was wondering about that diesel you were talking about spraying diesel on it, and if it would ruin my plastic uh pump up sprayer,
1: it certainly won't hurt your sprayer, but um, do you have anything else planted in the area what What else is around? Are there trees in the area shrubs or yeah, anything there are else
10: trees yeah.
1: Yeah, well, you probably wouldn't. Trees and what?
10: Trees and some. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the plant. Now. I haven't said it in so long. Uh, well, anyway, there's some other bushes around. there. Yeah, area. no,
1: you can't. You can't use a diesel. Then you'd you'd mess up their roots as well. If this is an area that is not, you know, right super close to other plants, what you can do. And, uh, the weather has certainly turned hot, is just cover it with black plastic or, uh, do what we call solarizing it, and that will kill the seeds as well as the plants. And, um, that's probably going to be the most effective way other than just continually going after it, because, uh, Mexican petunia doesn't have to be very big to start blooming, and then you've got, you know, a whole new crop. Uh, of seed out there to start new plants, whether you get the parent plants out or not. But uh, in this situation, either mulching super heavily or covering it for six weeks or so with, uh, with something like plastic, either clear or black, that's going to be the best way to totally eliminate the Mexican petunia. Okay, and the solarizing wouldn't hurt like the tree roots or the bushes roots. Well, it it will. It they won't especially like it. But and you know, I wouldn't go in the case of a shrub. I wouldn't go all the way around it. You might solarize one side. You know, if it's kind of toward the middle of the bed, you might solarize uh, one side around there, and then move over to the other side after you've killed the first side. But You know, a a tree, it's got, may have some roots in there that are going to be negatively impacted, but 90% of its roots are probably going to be somewhere else, so unless it's a very small or very young tree, it's uh, not going to be severely impacted at all.
10: Okay, yeah, these are all big, so they they did good. Uh, The only problem I had this year, uh, other than that, that's a continuous thing, is of course like everybody else, all the tree limbs and I even lost a big beautiful oak tree that split in half so
1: oh these the winds we've had this year of you know the ice storm we had it was amazing to me how many even deciduous trees I mean we expect it with cedar trees and live oaks and things like that that are you know covered with leaves in the winter and then we get an ice storm but I had damaged uh, bare-limbed pecan trees and things with the ice this past year and uh, then followed up with a gusty really really strong winds we've had this spring as uh, the weaker trees out there have really suffered for sure
10: i know yeah i'm still sawing, so
1: <laughs> it's gonna go on <laughs> I for a while just just think of it as a good supply of firewood and uh um I, welcome to texas if you don't like the weather as they say i think they say it everywhere but i think it's especially true in texas that uh uh it will be something different very shortly so uh uh, it's just one of the things we put up with for warmer winters and uh, great lifestyles. So, Stephen, you have a happy Father's Day. I appreciate the call. Good, thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. And goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Mark. Good morning, Mark.
3: Good morning, Bob.
1: Good Hi. morning, sir.
3: Well, the uh, <clears throat> the baby hummingbirds are are at the feeders now. Oh, wow. You know There's a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good thing. I think they suffered, you know, with the really severe couple of winters we had. But it's great to see the populations rebounding, and glad you guys are doing your part to help them.
3: Yeah, I think we had about 800, so there's probably, well, a whole lot more than that with the babies.
1: Um, Absolutely.
3: And we had this real low-speed sprinkler out there, and there's Mm -hmm. probably 20 of them out there taking a shower now.
1: Oh, they love it. They love misters and and the, you know, like you say, the ones that are just a uh, very gentle stream. Uh, and they're so much fun. They just kind of frolic in that water. And uh, I love watching hummingbirds.
3: Yeah, that's cool. So, first question: um, the guy before me, um, yeah, made me think of this. Uh, would you put vinegar um, herbicide in a stainless sprayer if you wash it out right away? Or
1: would oh, sure, a- doesn't hurt a thing. Yeah, it doesn't leave any residue. There are various weed killers that do, but vinegar, if anything, is going to uh, take out some of the calcium and some of the residue in your sprayer. As long as you take it out, I don't worry about it You know, with the stainless steel or with plastic. But, of course, the seals and things, vinegar can be yeah. hard on. So do rinse it immediately after use. But yeah. you do not have to worry about any residual in there.
3: I put... Uh... <clears throat> My, my uh, local farm supply, farm and ranch supply, had this really nice long wand, and I put that on my stainless sprayer, so uh-huh. I don't I don't have to lean over and spray things. <laughs> so.
1: It becomes more of an issue as we get a few more years on us. That's for sure.
3: Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I've had this endless battle with the with the blight on the tomatoes. Mm-hmm. And the problem is. You, you can't spray them effectively. With all this rain, the, the the plants are so lush and thick, you just couldn't spray them, you know, well, with all the leaves.
1: And, you know, it, it blight, early blight is an issue, and like you say, it's hard to coat. But if you start early spraying uh, with, uh, uh, you know, something like garlic or even <coughs> your corn water tea, start while the plants are very small where you can... And you'll really, you know, you'll really slow it down. And, of course, uh, uh, it, early blight begins normally when it gets splashed up from the soil onto the leaves by heavy rain. So uh, this is another place that a good thick mulch will really cut down on blight problems.
3: Yeah. Our our plants are never exposed to dirt, but it, and it yep. still gets to them somehow. Um, yep. so I, and I it seems like the, the hot, dry weather helps a lot in controlling it. Mm-hmm. and so it kind of faded away and I was spraying the garlic water and then we got another rain the other night so the humidity's backed up to 100%. <laughs> so yeah. so now I have um it looks like I have still have some blight and I've got I think spider mites on some mm-hmm. which is kind of weird having both of those at once. Um would you mix the two the garlic water and the and the um <clears throat> seaweed in the same It
1: certainly seaweed? certainly wouldn't hurt anything. You may want to give them one spraying with uh, spinosad just to kill the active mites, and then the seaweed to help keep them from coming back. But um, oh, okay. I, you know, I'd I'd make my first spraying with spinosad, and then start following up with liquid seaweed. The, and, the problem with the, uh, you know, the the way fungi spread is the spores have to land in a drop of water on the leaf, and when we've got hot, dry weather and the leaves dry very quickly. We don't see nearly as many fungal problems as when we have high humidities and, you know, frequent moisture. When the leaves stay wet longer, they're just actually going to be more prone to having fungus get started on them. And this is where the garlic helps because it just kind of fills up all the available sites with beneficial fungi where the bad guys can't yeah. crowd in.
3: And and I spend a lot of time cutting off all the diseased leaves to try to uh-huh. you know, get rid of the spores. So, but when I'm pulling those out of there, I guess it's spreading spores. As it, as it, you know, you, you can't get it out without pulling it through some leaves.
1: Well, but and you know, these spores are going to be airborne. Um yeah. yeah. There, you're just, you're, you're not going to, and and you know, one plant can make millions of spores. So, yeah. Uh, right. You, we do what we can to limit the spread that way, but uh, they're always going to be out there.
3: And should I spray late evening now since it's so hot during the day instead of the morning? Uh,
1: Either early morning or late evening. You just want that foliage dry before the sun hits it. Probably, oh, I guess, you know, it's up to you. But uh, you don't want the plant staying wet at night. So spray early enough that the foliage can dry completely if you're spraying in the evening. If you're spraying in the morning, just get out there and do it first thing. And uh, that's when I tend to do
3: it. So 105 isn't going to be a problem then?
1: No. No. No, and you're not using any okay. oil-based sprays, so that, those are the ones that really cause the problems uh, because the oil stays on the leaves and acts like a magnifying yeah. glass. A uh, little drop of water okay. can act like a prism okay. the same way, but it's going to dry very quickly, so no, the temperature's okay. not going not to impact things you know, for that okay. reason.
3: And Howard's, Howard's recipe for the garlic water seems really weak, so what is your recipe again? Again,
1: it depends on your source of garlic. If you're using a liquid garlic that you buy, like garlic barrier or or mosquito barrier, I'd go ahead and put about an ounce per gallon.
3: This is fresh. Well, he he does two bulbs, the whole bulbs, into a gallon of water and just a quarter cup of that per gallon for spraying.
1: It must you know. be pretty big bulbs, and uh, yeah, again, you don't have to have an awful lot. What you're doing okay. is just stimulating the beneficial okay. fungi with it, but garlic's one of those things that, uh, uh, you know, and, and for a long time we had trouble finding a liquid garlic, but now this uh, company called Garlic Research Labs is putting out both garlic barrier and mosquito barrier where you can get good liquid okay. garlic at a reasonable price. So uh, okay. uh, that's what I use, and I just go about an ounce per gallon
3: okay and and it, it would it would it burn if you make it too strong the garlic no no okay, okay. certainly won't okay. i'm gonna make it a little stronger okay okay thanks bob well we can get going here again so oh the, the, the bush the bush beans have just been going bonkers this year it's just
1: oh yeah oh yeah and you should uh continue to do so you'll have to plant more than one crop through the summer but anyway mark you get out and take care of those okay. hummingbirds and uh let's get a break out of the way here so we get yeah, back okay. to more calls thank you sir Happy Father's Day. I get to talk to you right now about Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. And once again, boy, the hail has been spotty. But it has been intense up in the hill country the past couple of weeks. That's why I'm so glad that I have a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on my home Glad my business partner has one on her home. Glad so many of my friends up there have gotten smart and had Southwest Metal Roofing Systems put the roofs on their homes because, well, you just don't worry about weather when you have a good roof on your home. Here at the nursery at Shades of Green, we put a Southwest Metal Roofing Systems roof on maybe 15 years ago. It stood up to hail as big as tennis balls with no no significant damage whatsoever. Skylights, no, that's a different story, but uh, that good metal roof? No, it looks as good and has held up just as well as the day they installed it. It is truly a lifetime quality roof and if that's what you're looking for, you need to go to Southwest Metal Roofing Systems because there are many different metal roofs out there and not all of them are the same. Tell you what, is, uh they say you do it once, do it for life. And they do new construction as well as roof replacement. So if you just never want to have to worry about your roof, even if you're building a new home, well, just put that, have selfless Metal Roofing Systems, put the roof on and uh, you can stop worrying about it. Plus, they're so energy efficient. Plus, they look great. Uh, Probably get a discount on your homeowner's insurance. There's just lots of different reasons to love Southwest Metal Roofing Systems. Give them a call to learn more. 210-822-6868. It's 210-822-6868 for Southwest Metal Roofing Systems.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555.
1: All right, back to gardening. And, uh oh, gosh, there are just so many things going on. This, of course, is Father's Day. If you're looking for a great gift on a Father's Day weekend, uh, you know, you can always find something good at a good nursery, whether it's good gardening tools, whether it's a new gardening book on different aspects of gardening. Oh, a great pair of gloves, especially those uh, elk skin gloves that are really tough and durable. I can suggest a lot of different things. And don't skimp on, on tools. If dad's a guy that loves to get out in the garden and work, buy your tools from somebody that specializes in quality. Buy pruners that have that good, uh, European steel. Don't buy these cheapo things. They're going to be dull after the first time they really get used. If you're looking for absolutely premium things, of course, you can get stainless steel. Uh, when it comes to shovels and all. Beauty of stainless steel is that mud doesn't stick to it. So it's a whole lot easier to keep those things clean. The one thing that I will tell you to be about, be careful about, so many tools these days have those, um, the, pl- in effect, plastic handles and they look great. They feel great when you're working with them. It looks like they're going to hold up forever, but they're actually made with fiberglass and, after a relatively short period of time, um, all those glass fibers tend to get exposed. You'll find that after you've done some shoveling or raking or whatever, that you just feel itchy, that your hands kind of itch. And what you've done is just get lots and lots of those little glass fibers in your hands. So even though they probably don't last as long, I'm still a big fan of wooden handle tools. And when it comes to pruners, it's really important that you get... uh you know, wooden handles on, uh, well, like I say, on shovels and things like that. Uh, now on pruners and things like that where you've got a rubber grip, that's not quite as, uh, not quite as necessary, but, um, I still like the wooden handled ones or at the very least the ones with aluminum handles, which of course, uh, don't have that problem, but it's the reason that you see a lot of guys out there working, uh, with looks like shovels and things where the whole, the whole handle has been wrapped with duct tape or something like that, that's because they chose those fiberglass handles to begin with. And over time, those little glass fibers are getting exposed, and this is what... this is what really keeps things itching. My engineer stepped away uh, from the mic for just a couple of minutes, so this is why I'm, uh, why I'm giving you a little bit of information. And we're going to go back to callers right now, though, because we've got Carl and Joe and Kathy and Alberto waiting to talk. So Carl is first in line. Good morning, Carl.
11: Yeah, hey, Bob. i got a couple of um, kinsmen hanging baskets on my front porch with the yeah. purple and green shamrock in, in them. Right. And it faces it faces north. And uh, one of the hanger, uh, hangers, the the plants, the shamrock plants, are all blotchy. Like they have blotches all over them.
1: And it's probably the purple leaf form. That is yeah. a fungus. Well, just,
11: it's, oh, go ahead.
1: That's a fungus that is very, very common when we have a good deal of wet weather. Uh, it's good to spray with something if you control it, whether it's corn, water, tea, or garlic or something. But, in all honesty, the best thing you can do is just cut it back completely, cut every leaf off of it, fertilize with has to grow or something like that, and in a relatively short amount of time, uh, the plant will totally regrow i've I've probably seen more of that blotchy fungus this year than I have in the past several years, and it's partly because we've had some good late spring rains that's sort of a just a memory now because it's certainly turned off hot and dry, but uh, it's not something that's going to kill the plants but um, those leaves that are blotchy are not going to turn back to solid green or purple. I just go through and just you know cut everything back to maybe half an inch tall. Okay. Uh, fertilize them. Be, be amazed how quickly they'll come back out again.
11: Well, let me ask you this: I, I have pretty big overhang on my porch, so no water from rain gets in these. It's just us watering them. Right. And 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 it's a pretty tall porch, so I have like an extended like watering wand or whatever, and so. Mm-hmm. I'm sure I'm getting some water on the leaves. I mean, on the oh, yeah. Yeah, on the leaves and on the thing. Does that matter? Is that what's causing it? Or is
1: well, it- yeah, it's it's caused when when we have just general wet weather. um okay. You your plants may be staying drier, but your neighbors maybe a block away have them in the ground, and uh, after you get the blotches on there on the back of the leaves, you'll start seeing little spore mats form, and it's just the the amount of fungal spore material in the air and lots of times you know the air quality people you know when they when they tell you uh, that we've got you know x number of pollens and things mm. like that yep. fungal spores make up a high percentage of that and just when we have wet weather there's so much of that stuff in the air that uh you're just more likely to have it show up even if you have yours in a totally dry environment okay
11: um and what's interesting is it's only it's only on one of them and that's uh-huh. the one that it's on, originally was on the east side of the porch, which actually sort of gets brighter light. And I moved it because it was, it was bigger, you know, uh-huh. it, it filled out and bigger so I could move the other one. And the other one doesn't have that. So I don't know if the deeper shade is, you know, keeping it more moist and stuff. But anyway, cool. Perfect. I, I appreciate that. And then I have one other quick, quick question about right ahead. verbena, prairie verbena. Uh-huh. Um, That blooms, you know, I live out here in Kendall County and stuff like that, incredible bloominess this spring and stuff like that. Right. How long does that last? last? The bloom will last until
1: the weather gets super, super hot. They bloom well on end of the summer. The plants are perennial, and as long as we don't have, you know, years-long drought, um, they will come back year after year after year, both from seed and from the existing plants. So they are certainly one of my favorite wildflowers. And just when we get rains like we had uh, earlier this spring, uh, they've just been absolutely gorgeous. As we get into drier weather, if you can water periodically, the blooms will last longer. But by the time July and August get here, no, you're going to be down to gazanias and galardias and uh, some a little
11: bit tougher wildflowers out there. And each set of flowers, you know how to start it flowers and then a flower on top of that and top and get taller and taller and Each of those is, is seeds uh, being dispersed after that, right? Correct. Each, That's yeah. okay, correct. Cool. Nice. All right. Thank you very much, Bob. Have a good one. Oh, always a pleasure. Thank you, sir, and happy
1: Father's Day. Next in line is Joe. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir.
10: Um, I've got a quick question on grass burrs. Uh, okay. I'm trying to mow them to keep them down. Um the burr, and when it 's green, will it germinate later on, or does it need to so to speak ripen
1: on <laughs> no it unfortunately, once it is stiff once it's once it 's ready to hurt you uh it has matured enough that it can sprout and make more when they first come out, like maybe the first day uh they might not be mature enough, but no trying to keep ahead of them by mowing unless you're catching and, you know, putting the burrs in the compost pile. Um, it's it's going to be a, a losing battle with grass burrs. We're we're kind of at a tough time. Uh, what I ultimately did, because I had a part of my yard where, I mean, the grass burrs were so thick the dogs wouldn't walk into it, but uh, I put on in the fall, I put maybe, oh, half an inch of compost or so over the area, and where I probably had 10,000 plants that summer, I don't think I pulled more than six or eight grass burrs the whole next spring. So that has been what I have found to be the best way to control them. It's too hot to be putting your compost on right now, so much as I hate to say it, just, you know, mow and don't go barefoot. But uh, if you right. will put some compost out <laughs> this fall, I can pretty much promise you you'll have a lot fewer of them to deal with next spring. Mowing is good. It reduces the number of burrs, but it's certainly not going to eliminate them because of blasted plants. When you start mowing all the tall spikes off, they just start putting them out, you know, in a horizontal manner. So they, uh, that's now, why we truly call them a real pain in the grass.
11: Yes, sir. Uh, is there any
10: uh, herbicide that would, uh, I know it will kill the, the plant, but it would
11: affect the birds at all?
1: no um I, you know just a good old orange oil and vinegar um is will kill the plants quickly and completely and they are an annual grass but uh and this has to be done you know very carefully and hopefully by a professional uh but burning uh you know as they frequently do up north burning a field or something later in the summer uh, like I say, there's a lot that goes into it, not just, uh, knowing when the safe time is to light it, but letting things grow up enough where you have enough brown material that, you know, it will burn hot enough to kill the burrs, but, uh, you, you know, control burns done properly are a great tool in eliminating a lot of weeds, including the, uh, grass burrs, but, uh, considering how often these things seem to get out of hand, I'm still going to be doing the compost if I'm doing a reasonable size area. If I'm doing a yard, if you've got a hay field that you're really fighting them, then you probably need to get with a professional and uh, and look at doing okay. a control burn. is and the best way to burn.
10: Uh, you were saying late summer, um, I usually burn the fields in uh, March, uh-huh. early March. Is that too late or is that?
1: Um. That is no, that's not too late at all. In fact it it may be a little early. Um like I say, the the one of the main things about doing a control burn is having a lot of material there to burn. I mean if you just have a, a little flame that sweeps very quickly across an area, it may not be hot enough to kill the existing burrs. And, uh, but if you, you know, if you really let it get thick where you've got it, and there's a little prism you can hold up and, you know, judge the heat of the fire. Uh, We've done this up at the Cibolo Nature Center a couple of times when they've done control burns. And you get those flames up where you're looking at 1,200, 1,800 degrees, you're going to kill the seeds and all. That's going to be a little harder to accomplish in March than it would be in June or July.
11: Okay.
10: All right. Well, thank
1: you so much. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Appreciate the call. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, let me take a quick break so uh, don't get behind on doing these things. And uh, um looks like I get to talk to you about Rhonda's Nature's Way. And, of course, I just I love talking about Rhonda and her staff and all the good things that Rhonda's Nature's Way does to help people live healthier naturally. You know, the health of plants is important, but the health of the gardener is the most important thing. Her mom, who I guess originally was one of the one of the ones starting Rhonda's Nature's Way, celebrated ninety uh, second, ninety third birthday. I think ninety second birthday last week. And I think Vera is just a living example of how long and how healthily you can live when you get the nutrition you need, when you do the proper things to support your immune system. I mean, she was gosh close to ninety when she got through COVID a couple of years ago. It, it just living long living healthy you're just going to increase your chances of being around for a long time with healthy mental state When you're dealing with the proper supplements, when you're dealing with the proper vitamins, when you're using natural products to help out with things like digestive issues or sleep issues, Rhonda's there with all the expertise and over forty years of experience. She and her staff can help you live better naturally. And of course they also do things like the the reflexology, an absolutely amazing science. They also do beamer light therapy, red light therapy foot bath treatments, uh, ear candling. They just do a lot of different things. I rely on Rhonda, especially this time of year, for things like the uh, oh, the uh, electrolytes that I love, working out in the heat. Let me tell you what, it's just it's so much better than the sugary drinks. Uh, and just a lot of reasons to go see Rhonda's. She's always closed on Sundays, but uh, they're every other day of the week to help you. At Rhonda's Nature's Way out in the shopping center at the corner of I-10 in Callahan.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071.
1: All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. We're going to talk to Kathy and Alberto. There are a couple of open lines, by the way. If you were getting a busy signal for a while there, be a good time to dial 210 599 5555. Kathy's next in line, though. Good morning, Kathy. Good morning. Good morning. I
9: have a question about my, my mountain laurel has some worms on it. Uh huh sure that uh, spinosad is enough to treat that or should we be doing something else
1: spinosad is a good contact killer and if you can spray those little clusters of worms thoroughly it's all you really need Uh, if you are not sure and if you want to have a little bit longer lasting protection then you can use the bt products things that contain Bacillus thuringiensis. Mix a little bit of molasses with this and it will remain active for several weeks on the leaves of a plant and then any caterpillar that takes a bite of a coated leaf stops feeding immediately and dies within a few hours. So the choice is really up to you. If they're just getting started and you can spray really thoroughly, spinoset will work just fine. If you want a little longer lasting uh, spray then uh, again BT with a little molasses and it just... uh Keep the spray on the mountain laurels only because we're not trying to kill all the caterpillars out there, just the ones that are eating the foliage.
9: And do I um, mix the Bt with water and molasses or
1: just Bt? Yeah, follow follow the directions on it. It's usually going to be about an ounce of Bt per gallon of water and then add about a tablespoon of molasses to that. If you're mixing up a smaller amount in a sprayer, of course, reduce it proportionately. But mix your Bt, and that may vary a little bit depending on which brand you're using, but uh, then add the molasses just when you get ready to spray.
9: Okay, and then uh, on my ma- um Monterey oak tree. Uh, We planted it uh, in early spring. It was Uh doing really well. We put it in in the back of a retaining wall area, but in a a large berm. And a few of the leaves' um, edges have turned brown. And then on the very top leaves, about seven feet up, there are some small holes in about five or six of the leaves, just like ten holes.
1: Uh The <clears throat> I'm more concerned about the brown edges and little holes. Little holes are probably some sort of insect and the damage is not really significant. But when you start getting brown edges on the leaves, that tells me that you're having some root issues going on. It's probably water related. Uh be sure that when you're watering those, that you're really doing it thoroughly. Now we've had have, have had some good rains, but uh sprinkler systems just don't put out enough water to really water a tree you probably at least for the first couple of years you're going to need to be watering by hand maybe even laying the hose on the surface of the ground just so that it's really really thoroughly soaked and uh then don't water again till the proper time but uh both of these are just kind of an indication that you've got a little something going on uh there's so many different caterpillars out there That's probably what's making the holes in the leaves. And if you're making up your B.T. or your spinocet, either one, to spray the mountain laurels, you might go ahead and just spray the top of uh, your Monterey oak. But do do watch your watering very carefully. Uh, Not life-threatening, but it just tells you that the roots aren't totally happy when you start getting the brown edges and the brown tips.
9: Well, something I noticed on um, some of our uh, live oak trees that we planted a few years ago, little tiny ants at the base you know there's some like um i guess these oaks are starting to get their rougher bark maybe because there's some um not splits but it looks like the bark is separating down at mm-hmm. the very bottom at, at the root flare and uh, these small little ants were making a trail up the that area and going just up the bark but i didn't see any damage to the live oaks and the They're doing well. They're putting on new growth and so forth. But we did spray that with uh, Spinosad, Mm -hmm. uh, wherever we saw ants going up. And I haven't seen any lately, but I was wondering, could these little ants have been um, headed for our Monterey oak?
1: It's possible. I'm not going to say it's likely, but you did the right thing. Spinosad is a great, great ant killer. And as you've correctly observed Uh, Some splits in the bark of a rapidly growing young tree. I always compare it to a lizard or a snake. You know, as they grow, they have to shed their skin. Their skin can't stretch enough, and that's what happens sometimes with trees. That, that, That bark can't stretch enough, so it just splits. Believe it or not, and don't do this yourself, but some professional tree growers on some types of trees, especially fruit trees, they will actually take a knife like a sheetrock knife or something and split the bark up and down, you know, vertically up and down the trunk because it actually makes the trunks grow faster. So that's not something to be concerned about at all. But uh, the ants probably not an issue, but uh, I don't like ants up in the trees anyway so a little spin of will take care of that in a hurry. Okay.
9: And uh, because we live here uh, outside of Bernie in the hill country, uh, the deer, and, and we've done the you know liquid fence and all the different ones. But I was wondering about mothballs or Irish uh, spring soap, if that would affect – I'm worried about that uh, seeping down into my plants, if that sure. would uh, affect Our... –
1: Yeah, not the, the soaps, uh, certainly not going to be an issue. Mothballs are nasty things filled with, uh, oh, dichlorobenzene and known cancer causers and things like that. Plus, they're going to dissolve in a hurry. Uh, I've known a number of people who've been very successful with the bars, and I don't know why Irish Spring seems to be the brand of choice, but just punching a hole in that and hanging it out in the foliage, uh, seems to work pretty well. Um, I'm hoping, and I'm putting a little pressure on uh, the guy that owns uh, Medina Agriculture, Stuart Frankie. We kind of put him on the spot last uh, at Festival of Flowers a couple of weeks ago, but I really wish that they would uh, start making uh, something called garlic pepper tea. There used to be a company called Maestro Grow that made a really good liquid spray, had a lot of hot pepper in it, and that was the best thing I ever found. To really keep the deer eating something else, but uh again, if you get the little bars of Irish Spring, a lot of people have found that uh have an aroma that the deer don't care for. best thing we've got going is that with the good rains we had in Kendall County a couple of well a month or six weeks ago, um, even a little bit less than that we've uh the deer have a lot more of their natural browse, so they haven't been going after our gardens nearly as much as they would in a Summer, but as it gets hot and dry, yeah, you're going to have to do something to try to keep them away. And our spring will work, but uh, a good hot pepper spray also works extremely well.
9: Okay, we could probably create something with some habaneros, maybe.
1: (laughs) Habaneros, or Yeah, there, there's some really scorpions. There are things that I don't understand how people consume those things, but. I guess some people have cast iron stomachs, but no habaneros or even the chili pekins, uh the little ones that grow natively around—those are hot enough to uh, stop the deer at least for a while.
9: Uh, okay, and then uh, I think one of our um, biggest problems we have in our area: uh, some of the residents that w- want to feed the deer, and, and mm-hmm. we have some we have some valleys between different streets in the area, and. Uh-huh. The owners put out a deer feeder, <laughs> so uh, I think that's drawing them into the area, and <laughs> I'm like, I don't get that, and the corn is so bad for the deer, I, I really wish they would educate people, parks and wildlife, or whatever, just to, to stop that, um, it doesn't do the deer any favor, I don't think.
1: I One of my, what has become one of my later favorite expressions that I heard the other day was... Uh, artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity <laughs> they're just a lot of dumb things that are dumb but you are absolutely right far better to not feed the deer at all and if you're going to feed um you know feed with uh a natural you know product that is made specifically for that purpose uh for people who do like to feed the deer and have deer proof yards uh Uh, there's some cotton seed out there. There's one called Fortified Cotton Seed. And the nicest thing about that, if you're going to feed the deer, the deer will eat it, but uh, the hogs and the raccoons won't. That's the other big problem with people that feed deer in the neighborhood is you tend to get a a wild hog problem, and the hogs can Mm -hmm. be far more destructive than the deer ever were. So uh, if you've got a homeowner's association or something that puts out some information, do your best to... To encourage people to do it right if they're going to do it at all
9: yeah they like to nibble on everything or a up the plants on their way to the deer feeder then when they cross mm-hmm. our yard so but uh the other question i had is our uh, two questions can we the guy that was calling in about solarizing um yeah we've for, for six years not had a problem with coastal just a little but uh this year, with all the rain or whatever, the coastal has just totally invaded our, uh, like, new gold lantana, some of our rebellious and stuff. We can't even pull it fast enough before it comes back. Um, and I was wondering if we could maybe solarize around the plant uh, to keep it from coming up.
1: It's, it's tough because that lantana doesn't have... As widespread a root system as, let's say, an oak tree or something like that does. So, uh, I wish I had a better solution for coastal coming up. What what I tend to do is uh, just take a piece of cardboard, and I can kind of put that under the edge of the plant and lift up, and then spray pretty thoroughly in that area with the vinegar and orange oil. But um, I. I, I don't think you'll be successful with getting rid of the coastal without damaging the roots of your lantana an awful lot. Just uh, keep after it <clears throat> as best you can. And like I say, I, I I like just using a piece of cardboard. That way, I can just hold the foliage of the lantana, or in my case, tomato plants, or beans, or whatever else up out of the way, and then give a pretty thorough spray with the vinegar and orange oil. And you just have to keep burning it back. Ultimately, you will kill it. Of what. I've done in my vegetable garden is around the outside edge I have I replace it probably yearly but about a three foot wide just strip of plastic all the way around and that keeps it at bay but yeah it's it's a problem when we get the combination of you know sunshine good fertilizer and hot temperatures all the Bermudas especially coastal really do try to invade
9: okay and my last question on our wildflowers uh, we had a really good um, stand of wallflowers this year mm-hmm. out in the uh, back area. And when is it uh, the best time to cut those back? Uh, when they totally go to sea? Because some other grasses are starting to grow up. It almost looks like a wheat grass is growing up in between it, a little taller than the wallflower.
1: Uh huh. Once the seed has matured, uh... Yeah, the, our our problem is, you know, we have wildflowers that start blooming really early and consequently mature their seed early. And then we have things like the so called Indian blanket, the gallardias that tend mm-hmm. to bloom later in the summer. And you just almost have to get out and inspect, realize that if ten percent of the flowers are effective in making seed, they're gonna come back very well in in future years. So you don't have to worry, wait until everything's brown. But the later blooming things, California poppies, Gallardias, you just really want to watch them. And when at least a, say, 10 to 20% of them seem to have mature seed on them, if you want to go ahead and mow at that time, you're sacrificing some flowers, but you're still going to have plenty of seed to get them back next year.
9: Excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have
1: a good weekend. Great questions, Kathy. I appreciate the call. Thank you. <laughs> goodbye all right uh jimmy let's get a break out of the way here we'll talk to alberto when we come back
0: south texas gardening with bob webster is on the air news talk 550 ktsa and fm 1071
1: all right back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. it's going to be alberto et and leslie alberto's first good morning sir uh,
12: good morning happy Day to everybody
1: and to you as well. Thanks for calling. And yeah. how can I help you? Well, I, I got a sad story. I got
12: uh, I was doing some research and, and, and marking some stuff for a water uh, system to water uh-huh. on. And I found out that I got four creep metal, uh, metal trees. They're about probably 12 to 15 feet tall. But they're uh-huh. really, what where, about where the house? I guess where we put these trees, they put it over the electrical line and the gas line. Oh yeah. So, so they gotta go. I'm I'm pretty sure that's the answer. Uh, I also I started cutting some of them, but you know, my question is, if I cut them right to the edge of of the ground, do I have to dig them out because the root is gonna grow, or the root you think is gonna die?
1: Well, I'm not sure. What 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 is your concern about the electrical lines and the other lines? Because tree roots don't. You know they don't invade a pipe. Uh, they can get into a pipe if there's a hole already in the pipe, like old-fashioned, you know, sewer tiles and things like that. But uh, tree roots and you know pipes and underground electric have coexisted for many, many years. Uh, I you well, know, unless
12: my concern is the, is the gas line.
1: Uh huh. And why, why are we concerned about the gas line?
12: Well, I, mean, I was wondering if, if, if would the roots destroy the gas line and oh no, no,
1: destroy not, under, not
12: a, under the tree, not in any way,
1: not in any way. As a matter of fact, if you had a leak in the gas line, one of the first ways you would know you had a leak is because it would start killing the the plants around it. But uh um oh. tree, you know, your your gas lines by code have to be pretty far down in the ground Uh, they have to be covered with uh, something other than dirt and then they put a plastic tape on top of them so anyone who's digging or trenching is careful not to uh not to damage them but no tree roots are not going to cause any problem to a properly installed gas line i would uh, that would be no concern whatsoever to me. And if you ever did have to dig up a line that went under, uh you don't have to dig with a backhoe. They can actually dig with something called an air spade and uh dig to, you know, replace lines or whatever else without destroying the root system of the tree. So stop losing sleep over this. This is not anything that's going to, you know, it's a one in a million chance it's ever going to be a problem.
12: Okay. Yeah, because I know the instructions from the from from CPS and all those people say you have to have, you know, don't plant a tree within five feet of a line. So that's like, okay. Well, and but, that's... But these, these ones are surely old, certainly, you know, the markings of the, of the guys who came and marked it are exactly under the tree, you know. Uh-huh. Like, like okay, but, but you saying it's good to go, then it's good to go, I guess.
1: Oh, it should be. It should be good to go. The reason that they recommend staying away is typically so that if the line ever has to be repaired or replaced, so that they don't damage the trees or the plants in doing so. But, um, you know, an oak tree is going to have roots 50 feet away from the tree, so... Um, <laughs> I, I, again, I, that would be the least of my concerns. I mean, gas lines and all, are uh, they're typically done with a heavy iron pipe, which is coated with the plastic material to reduce corrosion and other problems. Um, again, if they've been professionally installed, uh, should not be an issue at all. And if you ever have to install or replace a line near a tree, just be sure the company doing the insulation is using an air spade to dig the trench rather than a backhoe. And, uh, these things have coexisted for many, many, many years. So just, just play it smart, but you certainly do not have to eliminate your trees just because they're planted near underground electric lines or gas lines or water lines or sewer lines. Now, uh be sure that you are using it you know or be sure whoever is doing the work is using good quality pipe and uh there, there are a lot of oh yeah, fly sure. by night uh companies in the plumbing industry as there are in every industry that use the cheapest thinnest wall plastic pipe out there but um it's uh uh it's very unlikely to be a problem um Okay. That you would ever have to deal no, with?
12: No, no, no. I already made the mistake of cutting one, so I'm I. I might leave. <laughs> but will, will the root will the root grow back, or the or, or these the marrows are very sensitive, and once you cut the very front, no, to the bottom, uh, it dies. So yeah, no, they baby. they
1: put out new roots. I would never, you know, go all the way around and cut all the roots. I could certainly, you know, kill a plant, but a plant can live with probably. 80 percent of its roots removed it will languish a bit it will take a while to regrow but in the days before we had plastic containers and all that were used for growing nursery plants uh, typically virtually all trees and shrubs were grown out in uh, you know fields and when they were going to be sold they were dug up wrapped with burlap probably a 70 percent of the roots behind in the field and yet, that's the way virtually all planting was done for 50 years or longer. So uh, cutting a root here and there, no, not going to have a long-term negative impact on your plants at all.
12: Right. No, I want to do a quick follow-up. Thanks for the information. That makes me feel a little better. Um, you mentioned something about wa- know, water, water irrigation systems.
0: Uh-huh. You know,
12: what is a, a good, how much timing should we do for a lawn that has both
1: lawn and trees? What you should do to keep your grass adequately watered is you should run your system long enough to put down an inch to an inch and a half of water each time you run it. Worst thing people do is to run them for 15 minutes every few days, and of course with water restrictions, uh, you can't do that, but... Take some little straight sided uh, containers like a cat food can or you know a soup can or something like that. Mm -hmm. Set them out on the pattern of your sprinkler. Time how long it takes to run an inch to an inch and a half of water in there and that's how long your sprinkler should run each time it runs. Probably for grass, it'll be no more than once a week. And other than very young trees, I mean, if we get into a severe drought, you're just going to have to do some supplemental watering with a hose. But um in a typical situation, that's going to be enough water for established trees when you plant new trees yeah you're gonna have to go do a little extra hand watering but uh just just set some little straight-sided cans i'm sorry they stopped it years ago saws used to make a little rain gauge that held like two inches of water that they just gave away had a little spike on the bottom of it and they told people to do exactly that go place these around in your yard Uh, time how long it took to run the appropriate amount of water into those, which is one to one and a half inches. And then that's just how long you set your sprinkler system to run. But uh, on an established yard, even in the hottest part of the summer, should be never more than once a week.
12: Okay. A real quick quick question, last one. I I got some trees. I got got a property that I bought, you know, about an acre, beautiful house, beautiful trees. There seems to be some mesquites. And they used to have a I want to call it a a a camp house, a playhouse in between this uh uh tree. And uh-huh. The tree kind of grew at angles. Uh-huh. So forth. we had to destroy took out the 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 the, the toy, built up a house uh-huh. and and the trees are going so much of an angle, I'm afraid it's gonna <laughs> fall.
1: No because one of them
12: is you know so he's, he's facing the is on top of my water uh Septic system control. Uh huh. Uh-huh. The angle, I mean, the angle is, I want to say, maybe 45. I mean, getting, to, I mean, getting pretty close to
1: 45 <laughs> degrees. Uh, it The trees I are need of...
12: somebody to come in. To, you know, you recommend anybody come, a tree service person. I know that, man, it's so expensive to get the trees removed, but I, I, anybody you recommend that uh, we can call and we can see how well, it's going to fall or not going to fall, going to be removed or not removed?
1: Um, What area are you in? I'm
12: over here by. I mean, 1604
1: and 90. Cool. Oh, okay. So you're you're here, and uh, I'll tell you, I, the best arborist, consulting arborist I know, and this is a guy, not the guy that actually does pruning and things like that, who has nothing to sell you but a little bit of his time. and uh, But his name is David Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-A-N. And uh, okay. if you've got a pencil there, his phone number is 210-788-4986. He worked for a really good tree company, Ed tree care for years, and they do all sorts of things okay. but when David reached a certain age, he said, you know, I don't have to work this hard. I'm just going to be a consultant. And I'm going to stop climbing trees. And uh, like I say, he's he's very reasonable in what he charges. But he will come out and look at that tree, suggest what you can do to, uh, t- well, he'll tell you whether it's a threat or not. Sometimes even if it is, he will tell you, well, you need to cut out a limb here and a limb there just to take some of the weight off. But he's the guy that I call if I have tree questions.
12: Awesome. Awesome. Really appreciate your time. And like I said, happy Father's Day. I really enjoy
1: your show. Very educational. Thank you. And you have a wonderful Father's Day as well. Thank you. Goodbye. All right, uh, Jimmy, let's get a break here and we'll be back with more phone calls.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071 all right
1: back to gardening this beautiful morning father's day morning is just slipping on by here so let's keep going with the phone calls it looks like uh et is next in line good morning et hello bob how are you today off to a good start how about yourself oh i'm still kicking so i'm doing quite all right very
13: good how can i help i got okay i got a question about plants containers and pot size you know What's the minimum or maximum sizes for, say, a tomato plant or a pepper plant? Because tomatoes and pepper are in 14 by 14-inch 14 pots. What would be the smallest?
1: Well, the, the smaller the pot is, the more often you're going to have to water it. Um, and plants are happiest if they're root-bound. It's much better to have a plant in a smaller pot than it is in a super big pot. But on a tomato, for instance, uh, when it's fully mature, it's going to dry out so quickly you'll want to have it in a bigger pot. But it's better not to take one little plant and plant it in a giant pot. It's better to move things up gradually, and this would be a shrub or a tree or a pepper or anything else. Um, You know, move it first of all to a gallon container and then maybe move it on into a bigger pot. But there's no such thing as too big or too small, really. It's just that the smaller pot is going to dry out so quickly it may become a problem to you to keep it adequately watered. Uh, you won't have to water a big pot as often as you will a smaller pot once the plant's well established.
13: Okay, great. Okay, uh, plant food uh, fertilizer. Uh, like when a new, new newly planted plant starts growing, the numbers on the fertilizer will I have to change the fertilizer numbers as the plant matures and becomes larger?
1: No no and just forget about the numbers on a on a fertilizer label they're virtually meaningless they tell you how much of nitrogen phosphorus and potassium are in there but they don't tell you what form the the minerals are in for instance in a chemically derived fertilizer um it could have 20% nitrogen but most of that water shouldn't wash away your plants might only get Ten percent of all the fertilizer that's in there. So even though it said twenty percent nitrogen on the number, the plant only might only get two percent of it. On an organic fertilizer, which is going to have a much lower number, um, those nitrogen formulations are not so water soluble. Uh, they stay in the soil, and the plants get you know basically a hundred percent of the fertilizer. So on a good organic fertilizer, if it was a three-two-three. Your plants would actually get more usable fertilizer than out of one that had, say, a 2010-10, where the fertilizer is just in a different state. So, don't, don't pay any attention to the numbers, and, uh, you don't have to change from, you know, uh, from young plants to older plants. Now, young plants, um, if you're able to prepare the soil well, I like to work a dry fertilizer in before you plant. If basically you're just putting it into a pot or something like that, I will use a liquid fertilizer. But in any case, uh, the same thing will work the day you plant it as will work, uh, you know, four or five months later.
13: Okay, great. And uh, i got a, a fine idea. I rescued uh, some type of a pepper plant, right? And mm-hmm. the pepper, the leaves are a very, very dark, purplish, almost black color. And the peppers themselves are very tiny, like small marble size. Uh-huh. You have any idea what it kind of a pepper plant that would be? And that is it's very, not quite hot, you know, but you could taste a little hot to it.
1: Well, it probably is an ornamental pepper rather than one that is really grown from before, you know, the edible quality of the peppers. There are a lot of peppers that uh, are purple to brown to, you know, many different colors that are grown really for the uh, color of the fruit rather than so much that you're going to eat it Um, now there are you know some of the moderately hot peppers uh, even some of the bell peppers may have a purplish cast to the leaves and to the peppers but in general if the leaves are highly colored that plant is probably an ornamental variety rather than one that's being grown for edible peppers
13: yeah because when I rescued it it was small right and it's, it's about a foot and a half tall right and very tiny peppers all over Yeah,
1: so. Yeah, it is probably and, an ornamental pepper. I mean, if you want to eat it, you can, but they're usually not as tasty as the varieties that are grown for consumption.
13: Nah, it's too hot for me. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: understand.
13: And I've got one last question. Mosquitoes, with all this rain we've had lately, uh-huh. mosquitoes like inside people better or outside people better?
1: Oh, it doesn't matter. Uh, the mosquitoes like the ladies better because the hormones tend to attract them a little bit more. Uh, the mosquitoes like people that wear colognes and uh, perfumes because that tends to draw them in as well. But uh, inside, outside, wherever there's a warm-blooded creature and a mosquito, it's probably going to go after you. I like some of the... Uh, Different repellents that don't have DEET in them. DEET's a neurotoxin that I don't want to put on my skin, uh, but there are some real good ones that are based on lemon oil and, uh, um, you know, the, uh, citronella and things like that. Murphy's makes a very good one. There's, there's certainly some very good repellents out there, but, uh, um, mosquitoes will go after different people at different rates, depending on a lot of different things. So I just hope you're not one of them. <laughs> I hope they no, leave you alone and go after go after. Them. Yeah, they
13: generally leave me alone. I read an article. You're, you're that
1: lucky. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm right at news time, so i got to go. This is KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now two one zero five nine nine fifty five fifty five.
1: All right, back to gardening and uh straight back to the phone lines. Let me see here. I believe we're up to Leslie is next in line. Uh uh let's see Leslie says Leslie hung, right? hung up. I see. Okay, it's gonna be Penny and then Megan. Penny is next. Good morning, Penny.
6: Hello, how are you today, sir?
1: I am off to a good start, even though it's going to be pretty darn hot today.
6: Oh, I know. Uh, Okay, I have three things real quick for you. Okay. Um, The first one, you were talking just a while ago to somebody about some mosquitoes. Right. Uh, I found a really great uh, solution on Pinterest, believe it or not. It was a cup of witch hazel and 20 drops of organic peppermint oil. Uh-huh. And you spray that around your door. You can even spray it on yourself, and it works.
1: Witch hazel is a wonderful product. It's an air air freshener, and, yes, it's an yes. insect repellent as well. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the really good things. But I have to tell you, different people seem to get you know, success with different products and uh I've known people who've done extremely well with that and other people that simply the mosquitoes love them so much they went right past it. Uh lavender is another good thing. I've known people that use lavender, oil of lavender as an insect repellent and it works perfectly for one person and the next person the mosquitoes don't don't even hesitate. So, yeah, I think witch hazel and even a combination, like you're saying, witch hazel and a couple of other things is absolutely great. And if you kind of spray that around a room, the mosquitoes will stay away for a while, you know, just as a, a general area spray as well.
6: That's good to know for that, too. Um, so, and then my second thing is uh, powdery mildew on my squash and my cantaloupe.
1: The best thing you can do, you can pretty much prevent powdery mildew if you'll spray early on with either garlic. Garlic is a great preventative. Or if you'll take whole ground cornmeal, soak it in water for a few hours or soak it, you know, put it in in the afternoon. Uh, the next morning, you can use the liquid off of that. It will work very well to prevent. And if you've already got the powdery mildew, it will help to correct it. But I have to tell you, on all the cucurbits, whether it's squash or watermelons or cucumbers or cantaloupe, it's a lot easier to prevent it than it is to try to get rid of it once it's gotten started.
6: Yeah, I went away for a weekend and came back, and it was like,
1: hey, Mary Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we oh. found your garden, and we're going to be around. The nice thing is that while it, it's not good for the plants, while it makes them a little less healthy, Normally, they will go on growing and producing, even though the plants get really ugly. But uh, just get in the habit of uh, spraying early morning, either with that corn water tea or with some garlic, and you'll you'll head them off, typically, before they cause a lot of damage.
6: So I had a hummingbird feeder hanging over there by it, but ever since they that, that stuff got on there, they don't go to that one anymore. Is that uh, any reason why, or is it just I got...
1: I, it's hard to say they, you know, um, mildew is a fungus and it may make spores and things like that, that, uh, uh, I've never heard of the hummingbirds avoiding an area, but, uh, I'm not going to say it's impossible. Just, uh, move your feeder a little further away and, uh, just be sure to keep the nectar really fresh. It's gotten so hot now that, uh, the nectar almost has to be changed every couple of days because, uh, where it used to last for a week or so. Uh, now Wild Birds Unlimited has something that you can add to the nectar so that it keeps longer. But my feeling is probably it's not something that has to do, you know, with the mildew on the squash. It's just that, uh, when we, when it gets this hot and the mildew gets bad, we've got to be changing our hummingbird nectar every day or two.
6: That could be my problem
1: yeah, and okay, do and do scrub last... the do scrub the feeder between whenever you change the uh nectar, you know take a minute, take your sponge and some good dish soap, and scrub that feeder out because uh they little hummers are pretty picky about wanting nice clean feeders and nice clean nectar,
6: oh yes, sir, and I use a pipe cleaner to get down inside the little things
1: uh, you're a good friend of the birds, you're a good friend of the birds
6: so, oh i I try. They're, pretty, they're cheaper to take care of. Than <laughs> you're <laughs> uh, right. And then my, last, my last thing is on my beautiful garden in the back with all my tomatoes and peppers, I've noticed a lot of little baby grasshoppers and crickets that yep. I don't want to hurt my pretty yellow and black country spiders that are out there.
1: Right. Right, unless they um,
6: hurt, but I don't think they hurt my plants. Those spiders, I've never it, seen.
1: No, them. no, the, the spiders actually eat a lot of the grasshoppers. So when they're small, but spiders are other than a couple of you know toxic ones, uh, spiders are your friend in the garden, and they should be uh, they yeah. should be left alone because they're doing I try good things. Really
6: hard to
1: yeah. Um, what about grasshoppers are tough. Uh, we used to have a bacterial bait we could put out that controlled them pretty well, and it just hasn't been available for the past couple of years. Uh, the best thing you can do, there is a product uh, that you can either get at a nursery or get at a hobby shop that's called Kaolin, K-A-O-L-Y-N, Kaolin Clay, and um you you just simply mix it with water and spray it on the plants. It's abrasive. The grasshoppers don't like to eat it, but it's not toxic. It doesn't hurt your spiders or your ladybugs or anything else. But one of the few ways that we found to really try to deter the grasshoppers is spraying kale and clay.
6: So can I sprinkle, if I can't find that, can I sprinkle DE around it, around um, the garden real good? Will that
1: help? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, probably not. But uh, And and if you're going to a nursery, look for the clay under the name of uh, Surround, S-U-R-R-O-U-N-D. Uh, it's become more widely available. It's called Surround WP, which stands for wettable powder. But we're, uh, you know, keep, keep putting out your other bird feeders, too, because birds eat a lot of grasshoppers. But I'm afraid okay. the way things are going, it's going to be a bad summer for grasshoppers.
6: Yeah. If it's grasshoppers. Okay. Um. Then that's all. You have a happy Father's Day, sir, and thank
1: Well, thank you most kindly. I sincerely appreciate it, and you have a good Sunday. Thank you. Thanks, Good-bye mm-hmm. Goodbye. All right, next in line is Megan. Good morning, Megan.
14: Hi, how are you?
1: I'm off to a good start. A little warm out there today, but, you know, that's if it's summertime and it's in Texas, it's probably going to be pretty warm.
14: Yes. Um, so I have a question. I know I actually spoke to you about this flame leaf sumac before, uh, that they don't do well with cuttings. But I do have a – I'm going to call it a sucker. I'm not sure that's correct um, – that has come up off to of the side. Uh-huh. And it is about a foot tall. Can you dig and get that and replant it? To
1: typically, typically yes. What I would do, you know, that, that sucker is coming off sort of an underground stem and if I wanted to be real sure it was going to be fine to transplant, I would take my garden hose and I would just wash the soil away from the base of it. If it has started forming roots down into the soil, yes, cut it free, dig it, replant it. Uh, many times it's easier to put in a pot for a little while, get a good root system on it before you plant it elsewhere. But, um, you just, you want to be sure that it's got some roots started. Before you cut it free from the mother plant, and the easiest way I know of to do that, like say, is just take your garden hose, put your thumb over the end, and just wash the soil away from the base where it's coming out of the ground.
14: So it's uh, where it has come up is about a, well, it's about two feet away from the base. So right. when you discover that it's got roots and you're going to cut it away, should you cut it as close to the mother as possible, or no?
1: No, cut it, cut it out as close to the, as to the new plant as possible.
14: Oh, okay. As long as you get some roots. As
1: long as you get some roots. That's the important thing. And that's the only negative I know of because that is one of the prettiest, most colorful things you will ever have in the fall. But they certainly can be invasive.
14: So what is your thought about it's actually planted very close to a mountain laurel. Uh, do you think there's any problem with them growing very close together?
1: Not not anything that would make me cut one or the other one down, because here's the thing about the sumac. It's a deciduous plant. It's going to drop 100% of its leaves in the winter, and so that mountain laurel's got full sun, or, you know, four, five, six months of the year while the sumac has no leaves on it. And then if it gets a little shade from the sumac during the hot summer months, no, I think they can coexist. Whether you find it attractive or not, I'm not going to go down that road because uh, I, I know a lot about plants and very little about garden design. <laughs> so well, if you like them, don't, don't worry about them crowding each other or anything like that.
14: Okay, so the roots mixing together and anything is ah, not problematic?
1: Not going to be an issue.
14: Okay. Well, thank you very much.
1: Well, you are certainly welcome. Have a great weekend, and I appreciate the call, Megan. Thank you. You
14: too. Thank,
1: thank you. Uh, Jimmy. let's go ahead and uh, get a break in here. We'll be right back. Uh, got some open lines, by the way, If from getting a busy signal. We only have about 45 minutes left in the show, so call me now, 210-599-5555.
0: South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071.
1: All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines and back to Jackie next in line. Good morning, Jackie.
5: Hello. Good
8: morning.
1: Good morning to you. Um,
5: Bob, I have a lime bush. (laughs) It's small. It's not a tree yet. It's not young. I've had it for years, Um, and some years it's produced a lot of limes, and some years they just don't stay on the tree. And um, it froze down this last winter, Uh and now it's coming back. Uh, How long do I need to wait before it starts? It'll start producing limes again.
1: Well, its uh, maturity is a one-time thing. Once it is mature, it is capable to produce limes, you know, as long as it's just big enough to form a lime. There, it doesn't have to go through the maturing process all over again. Um, okay. Do you know the problem with things that freeze down and then come back is that the majority of citrus sold, not all of it, some of it is cutting grown, but most citrus that is sold is grafted onto a different rootstock. Uh, and the rootstocks tend to be more cold hardy than the original, you know, variety of lime or lemon or grapefruit or whatever else. So yeah. these plants freeze back and then when it appears that they're re sprouting, the new sprouts are actually coming off the rootstock, which was probably sour orange or you know, one of the other things. And so um your your lime bush could begin producing this summer. That's the other thing about small limes. Now, when this one produced, did it make little limes or did it make big limes?
5: Good, Nice-sized limes, not huge, but decent-sized limes.
1: Okay, because there there are two types of limes. Uh, The Persian limes tend to make a relatively large lime, but they bloom in the spring, produce in the fall, and so you really only get one crop. The smaller limes that they call Mexican limes or key limes, those can make new flowers and fruit 365 days a year. Uh, So those things can be producing almost constantly. Uh, If yours is the bigger lime type, it's not going to produce anything until it blooms, which probably won't be until next spring, Uh, and then you'll get limes in the summer.
5: It it didn't come back in time to bloom
1: this year. then probably it's going to be wait and see. The one thing is watch the growth that comes out because typically, and I mean all limes have thorns, but most of them, they're little bitty short thorns on a true lime. But the rootstock plants tend to have these monstrous, you know, poke a big hole in you type of thorns. So if you notice that the growth that's coming out now has flatter stems and big thorns, uh, that's not a lime tree anymore. You could regraft it. You could graft a lime back onto it. But uh, when when you see the big limes and the flat stems, uh, that's not a lime anymore. That's the rootstock, and it's not going to produce anything that you would want to eat.
5: Oh, okay. Hmm. Well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I'll like have I say, it's, wait and see. Yeah, it is a matter of wait and see, and. But, and if you're concerned about this uh, uh you know, if you buy another lime, try to find one that is grown on its own roots, and the tag on it should say that uh there are only a few people that grow citrus, and with the agricultural laws, um we are not able as somebody selling fruit trees. We can't buy anything from outside Texas. Everything we or any other nursery sells has to be grown here in Texas, and there are only about three companies that grow citrus so um you know it's limes have been hard to get uh, very few nurseries have have had limes for the past month or two. Hopefully, Phanix, uh, we, some of the other nursery around, hopefully we'll have more of in the fall. But if possible, look for one that will, say, grown on its own roots. And that way, if it freezes back in the future and then comes back out, you'll know it's still the good lime that you were hoping for. But I, I would like to hope that yours is coming out above the graft point. But when it's this late in the year and it's just starting to come out, I'm gonna tell you nine times out of ten it's a rootstock coming out. So you can and it's not difficult to graft. If you know somebody that has a lime tree, you can graft a you know, a limb of uh that lime or even just a bud of that lime onto yours and you'll get, you know, a good producing plant. But just to let it come up and grow we're just gonna to have to wait and see whether it's gonna be something that'll produce an edible fruit or not.
5: Oh, okay. Um, another question. Have you ever heard or seen a um tree, a lemon tree that has pink lemons
1: on it? Oh yeah. Yeah, there, there are several varieties of lemons out there. I'm trying to remember the name of that variety, but um yeah, that's <laughs> it's a it's an unusual thing, but it does, you know, you can make literally pink lemonade without adding any food coloring. But uh yeah, they're they're not as common. Just about most of the lemons grown these days are what they call uh, Myers lemons or approved Myers. They're all the same. But uh, and I'm sorry I don't bring the name of that uh, pink one to mind. But yes, that uh, that is a good lime or a good lemon. It makes a little bit bigger tree than the Myers lemons are, and it probably is not quite as cold hardy. But, uh, yeah, it grows well and produces well. It doesn't have to Can't have cross-pollination from a different tree. If you've got one tree, then you should still get plenty of lemons. Okay. Can it be grown
5: in a big pot?
1: Sure. Absolutely.
5: Okay. Okay. All right. Well, you've told me what I need to know. I do appreciate well, it.
1: And it's my pleasure to do so. You get out and enjoy a beautiful Sunday, and call me again when you get another question.
5: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Jackie. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, next in line is Beverly, and then it'll be David. Good morning, Beverly. Uh,
15: yes, thank you. Um, I had two questions for you, if we have time.
1: Uh, I'm sure uh, we do.
15: First of all, you know, of course, all the, the ice storm devastation and trees right. tumbling over. Well, one evidently was damaged, and I have a, an oak tree that has fallen over, and it's It's in a place that it really needs to be taken care of. Um, Mm -hmm. It's laying on top of a fence. And anyway, um, there's a window of safety where trimming can be done. And then if we can't wait till that window of safety, um, is it just a matter of painting every wound immediately?
1: Well, first of all, there is no safety window. 365 days a year, depending on the weather, Oak wilt can be spread, so uh-huh. there, there's no time of the year that I recommend trimming on an oak without on a live oak or, or red oak. You don't have to worry about Monterey oaks and uh, bur oaks and things like that. But uh, there is there is no time that you should avoid painting the wounds. Um, okay. Right now is a perfect perfectly good time to trim, but uh, any wound. That's the other thing that some. Uh, I'll just call them lazy. Some arborists uh, want to tell you, oh, if it's a small wound, it doesn't have to be sealed. Now, you should seal, you know, every wound on a tree. Now, a little root sprouts that get mowed off, that's probably not an issue. But where you have limbs that need to be trimmed, it does need to be sealed. Now, it does not have to be pruning paint. You don't have to use that. The wound only has to be sealed for about nine or ten days, and then it will seal over to where you won't get. Have any potential for oak wilt getting started? So you can use just a cheap old spray paint from the box store, uh, but you do need to prune literally with your saw in one hand and your paint in the other. Uh, so uh, go ahead and trim this afternoon if you need to. It's a great time to get it done. But do do seal all the wounds that you make on the tree.
15: Okay. Now, what about um, if uh, you know blocks that you cut off? Do you need to seal the blocks that fall on the ground and are? Oh no, you
1: know? no. No, absolutely not. Those, you can just turn those into firewood. Uh, oak wilt only gets started. It's a fungus disease. It gets inside and plugs up the, so to speak, the blood vessels of the tree. Um, we call it xylem in the case of a tree. But it gets in and gradually plugs that up. But it in dead wood, it does not do anything. And if you were cutting a limb that was totally dead, you would not have to seal that. But uh, the pieces that come off, no, just turn them into firewood and enjoy them uh, next winter. So,
15: no no such thing as oak wilt spreading through fresh-cut, live firewood?
1: No. Well, okay. no. The, the way that the disease spreads, and uh, I'll take just a minute and, and talk about this because it's important to everybody out there, but um, the two ways that oak wilt gets spread is when the roots of one tree graft to the roots of another tree then the disease can go from tree to tree through its root system. It does not spread quickly that way, but it does spread that way. Um, The other way that it spreads is when a red oak, now a live oak does not do this, but when a red oak dies of oak wilt, it makes what we call a spore mat underneath the bark, and there may be millions of spores, and along with those spores, that dead tree produces a kind of a sticky, substance, sweet substance is attractive to a group of beetles. We call them nitty beetles and sap beetles and ambrosia beetles. Anyway, those beetles are attracted to this uh, sugary substance and while they're feeding on that, they collect the spores of the oak wilt on their bodies and then when they move off to feed on wounds on trees, they carry the spores of oak wilt over and can transfer them into the tree where they're feeding on the sap around that that cut spot. So that's what you have to worry about. Uh but uh when a when a live oak dies, it does not make a spore mat. So there is nothing in that live wood that you cut off that's going to spread to anything else. Now technically I guess if you took the sap uh away and, and you know rubbed it onto a new cut or something like that. Uh, Um, maybe there's an issue there but no no for all practical purposes you just ignore what you've cut Uh, now if it is a red oak that is dyed of oak wilt then we recommend don't don't move that wood let it dry until it checks until it splits at that point the spores will be inactive and even if it died of oak wilt it would be safe to move around the country to use as firewood but what you're doing no just do any trimming you need to do and just seal every wound that you make. And this afternoon, as long as you're not going to get heat stroke, (laughs) it's a lot more fun to do this in the morning than the afternoon. But time of year, this is an okay time of year to do it.
15: Okay. Um, Now, I do have a follow-up comment on that, but I wanted to get to the second question because of time. Um, I heard you some time ago talking about uh, I believe you had poke salad growing in a field of yours, and that in order so that you didn't have to spray the poison, which is toxic to other plants and people, you got out there and dug them up by the root. I have an area where I live in the hill country, and it's it may look like there's soil there, but <laughs> it's just a you know a little bit on the top, and the soil is intermixed with layers of lime and caliche.
1: Right, and, right,
15: and and I'm also a Disabled. I can't get out there and dig up these things by the root. And I was wondering, just a question: if I cut the thing off uh, and then injected something into the the stem, like alcohol or something else more appropriate, would that kill it?
1: Um, I don't think it was me that was digging it up by the roots. <laughs> that, uh, and I'm not. I'm not sure who you're listening to, but um. It might or might not. I would tend to where I've got something that I'm concerned about, you know, it's sprouting back from the roots. Uh if it's something like a mesquite tree, which I fight a lot of, we sag, I don't have much of on my ranch, but what I will tend to do is just dump a little bit of diesel fuel onto it and that will kill roots and all. And then I'll follow up with a little bit of molasses and that you know the the that stimulates the microbes that totally break it down. It's not organic, but compared to some of these brush killers, it's in my opinion a much much better way to do it. So, um, would well, you
15: like inject it the diesel fuel with a needle or just pour no. it on it?
1: Just pour it on. And then I go back a little later and just put a little bit of molasses with water on that or sprinkle a little bit of dry molasses around. But, no, it's just a matter. And, you know, a big stump takes more than a small stump. But, you know, where where you're just cutting off poke or something like that, I can't imagine having to put more than a fourth of a cup or half a cup on there, and it should kill it totally. And uh, yet the microbes will break it down and leave no harmful residue in the soil.
15: How long after the diesel fuel would you put the molasses A week later?
1: Yeah, no more than a week later. Okay. In fact, you know, I used to try to mix it together, but it's just the two don't mix very well. You have to stand there and shake it or stir it, and I guess the point where it was easier just to do it two separate times. Um, When I'm using dry molasses, which is just as effective but more expensive, I'll pour the diesel on, and then just you know scatter some dry molasses around immediately. What you're doing is just stimulating the microbes. So you are going to break down the diesel after it does its killing.
15: And this diesel will not hurt. Like a lot of these things are growing under trees.
1: I wouldn't it's- do too much under trees. Um, yes, it would hurt the roots if you overdid it. And uh, I, you know, I, I wouldn't do you know 50 plants at a time under a big live oak or something like that. But, uh, well, that's why I was the,
15: wondering if I should inject it instead um, of pour it.
1: You can give it a try and see. As I've never done it, so I I wouldn't know what to tell you there. But I would certainly use a smaller amount. But you know, poke salad is uh, is not a woody plant like a mesquite or something like that. So it doesn't take nearly as much to kill it.
15: Okay, and would you leave uh, some of the leaves on where no, it would be? To, no, more I, I would cut it. Up. As,
1: I would cut it as close to ground level as possible.
15: Okay. Well, if you have time, I had one other comment about the oak wilt. Yes, uh-huh. What, what in the world do these big ranches that have this start on their place, what can they do to control
1: it? Well, in that case, um, you know, there are ways that you can prevent oak wilt. Um, there is, you create what is called systemic induced resistance. And you can do this with, Cornmeal, you can do it with corn water tea, it means soaking cornmeal overnight in a bucket of water and then pouring that around your trees will cause the trees to in effect.
15: Hello?
0: Oh, uh, I think he might have gotten disconnected on the computer. Sorry about that. Let me uh, run a commercial and I'll put you on hold and see if Bob comes back on. Is that okay? Awesome. Okay, thank thank you. you. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM one oh seven one.
1: Alright. Well, we are back to gardening. Uh, apparently we had a problem with some of the equipment back at the station. Thank goodness we got good engineers that got it all fixed. So we are back on the air live and local. I don't know exactly at what point it cut out because I, I didn't hear it on my headphones. But, uh, anyway, uh, we were talking to Jackie about, uh, problems far, when people way out in the country with large numbers of trees. Uh, we, what most commonly is done is steps are taken to Make the trees more resistant to oak wilt, uh, which you can do with cornmeal, creating something called corn water tea. Uh, Also, sometimes trenching is done to keep it from spreading through the roots over larger areas, but those are, uh, those much larger subjects. It'll take a lot more time we've got left here in the show. So, uh, we're going to finish up the show with Beverly and then David. Beverly is up first. Good morning, Beverly.
15: Uh, yes, actually, it was me you were talking, oh okay, to. okay. And I Very did good. have a follow up on the poke salad when you okay. pour the diesel fuel on, do you just pour it on the roots or do you put some on the fresh cut stem so it'll absorb it systemically
1: i would I would cut it as low as possible, cut it off at ground level, and that uh-huh. way you're coating both at the same okay, time.
15: Just do both, okay, yeah. well, thank you so much.
1: Well, I appreciate the call. Sorry about the interruption, but uh, the electronics, is absolutely amazing that I can sit here with a little box. It's about 8 inches by 8 inches and do a radio show from anywhere in the world. But uh, all the equipment back at the station that makes it happen, uh, every now and then it just decides to get a hiccup in it. For, so thanks for being patient. Um, well,
15: you know, I have it. some oak trees, big oak trees, that uh-huh. probably have 20 of these things under them. Yeah, And so I'm going to have to be awful careful, evidently. Sure.
1: And maybe Just don't do, do, a do a them all at the same do time. Do a
15: few at a time. Yeah. yeah. All right. Thank you.
1: You're certainly welcome. I appreciate the call. Okay. Let's move on to David. Good morning, David. Morning, Bob. Good morning, I've sir. Questions for you. I've got a Lisbon tr- lemon tree that I planted. I
13: think I planted it too deep. And about uh-huh. 10 days ago, I decided to take the dirt off the roots. You know, to expose the root ball. Right. And unfortunately that was right before that little heat for, heat wave hit us and all my leaves dried up on it. Would it be okay or, or
1: Um Exposing the root flare shouldn't have had anything to do with that. It it may have, you know, you just you you don't you just go down to where the roots come out, but it certainly sure. should come back out. I would probably use a little bit of Garrett juice, maybe a little bit of this product called Super Thrive. Which just is uh, really does help things get through shock, but um, yeah, it probably is more of a water issue when the weather changed so suddenly, so much for to the to the hotter side. But uh, yeah, I treat it probably with a little bit of Super Thrive, and it should certainly come right back out. Okay, and then I got the like a ten gallon caddy containers that I want to make uh, if I can
13: plant some tomatoes and jalapenos in. Sure. How would you? Uh, what where, where would you put the holes, and how far apart would you space them, and, and you know, to make them?
1: <laughs> well, uh, it, it, the spacing and all is is really totally immaterial. You just want to have enough holes um, that you know water can drain out easily, and you want to have big enough holes, uh, you know, so that it doesn't just get plugged right back up. Considering that, and lots and lots of people grow very successfully in the molasses tubs, but you know, if you were to set that molasses tub right on top of a flat concrete surface, that in itself could make it a little harder for it to drain. So, if there's a way that you could take, you know, the boards or you know, the piece of steel tubing or you know, even plastic pipe or something like that, so that that tub is just a little bit up off the ground. That would help with drainage. And then as far as where you drill, I would kind of go around the bottom edge, but don't drill straight down through to the bottom. Kind of drill out at an angle uh, so that uh, the hole that you've created is not going to be, you know, where it could really seal against the concrete. Does that make sense?
13: Yes, maybe like an inch off the bottom
1: or something. Yeah, yeah, or even half an inch off the bottom, and then just go around maybe. And I again use a use a big enough bit. Use a you know a half inch bit or three three eighths. Okay. Yeah, and then just go around and maybe every eight or ten inches, uh, just put a hole through there. It will also help on the inside. I know some people use uh, like a nylon screen wire. Uh, you don't want to put a lot of gravel in the bottom, but if you want to put an inch or so of pea gravel or something in the bottom, just so the dirt was less likely to plug it up, that wouldn't hurt anything. But don't do like some people. Some people want to use fill that container, you know, halfway, two-thirds of the way up with gravel so they don't have to buy as much soil. That's a mistake. You want, you know, 90% of that container filled with soil so your plants can get a good root system, but... uh uh, those molasses tubs are wonderful and you can grow just about anything in them uh, they're great space conservers vining things like swash and cucumbers and all you can plant them toward the edge so they trail, o- trail over the edge and then in the middle you can plant your peppers or tomatoes or eggplant or you know okay. citrus trees whatever you like you, if you've got a good source of those molasses tubs uh, you've got You've got a great way to start a, a raised-bed garden.
11: Yes, yeah, sir. we got
13: a recycling center here in Quarrow, like $2 a piece, something like that. But, uh, could I put, like, a bigger rock in the in front of each hole or something like that, too?
1: Sure. Like... Absolutely, or a broken piece of clay pot or anything like that. Okay. Well, sounds good. Thank you, sir. Happy Father's Day. And to you as well, David. Thank you so much uh, for the thank call. You the day, huh? Certainly. You too. Bye. All right. Don't think we have anybody else on hold right now, so... uh Uh, Let me just tell you two or three things about what's going on out there, things with the heat. First of all, with the kind of heat that has suddenly set in, um, it's just flat gotten too late to put uh, compost on the yard unless it is fully mature compost. If you're buying compost in a bag like Nature's Creation or... Even the black cow, which is just not quite as good quality. Buying compost in a bag, you're probably okay with that. But the bulk compost tend not to be as well finished. And uh you just don't want to be putting them out when it's this hot. Not going to kill things, but it will certainly create a yellowing in your grass and other plants. So. Uh, um, unless we have a big change in the weather, unless you're using, like I say, fully decomposed bag compost, forget about buying it in bulk for the purposes of putting it out on your grass and all. You're going to have to wait till it cools off in the fall to do that. Now, if you're just improving the soil in a vegetable garden or something like that, if you're getting ready to plant your fall tomatoes and all, yeah, go ahead and use your bulk compost. Put it out on the surface of the ground. We've got probably... Maybe three weeks, two to three weeks before the growers are really going to have uh, the fall season tomatoes and things ready. So uh, just get that compost out now where it can uh, finish breaking down before before you put the plants in. Because it uh, it's gotten hot enough that uh, the ammonia and some of the other things in the compost, like I say, could cause some issues. Uh, it is a good time to plant a fresh crop of squash and plant another crop of bush beans. If you can find the transplants, it's okay to go ahead and plant peppers and eggplant. Uh, the thing with tomatoes is that uh, big fruited tomatoes don't set fruit when the night is hot. So we typically wait until the first two, three weeks in July before we put out our fall crop of big fruited tomatoes. Cherry tomatoes don't pay any attention to nighttime temperature. So cherry tomatoes, if you can find the plants or if you're starting your own from seed, go ahead and do that because you can plant those, you know, literally just about any time. Um, it's way too early for fall, uh, vegetables like, uh, broccoli and cauliflower, things like that. We'll have to probably wait till August till we really start, uh, planting those things. But, uh, um, you can certainly, whenever you can find the plants, uh, you can start planting your, uh, things like, um, like your tomatoes and peppers and, you know, that sort of thing. But, uh, do, um, do wait on the others and, uh, not, but, uh, Go ahead and go ahead and plant another crop of beans and cucumbers and squash and things like that if you like. Uh, other things that I would tell you, if you're using organic fertilizers, it is not too late to fertilize. You can go ahead and put your organics out. They do not even have to be watered in, but um, don't be putting out any sort of chemical fertilizers, any synthetic fertilizers, because you will create a real dehydration problem. You know the brands I'm talking about, uh, Uh, It's just awful hot to be putting them out but good products from Meister Grow or Medina or Nature's Creation their fertilizers can be applied at any time and of course the liquid products uh, like the Hester Grow plant that has to, grow, has to grow lawn do it early in the morning or late in the evening but has to grow plants you can use on all your plants any time of day uh, Medina makes the liquid fish fertilizer it is also good to use on just about anything at any time of day there's some other good products out there that uh, that certainly can be used but the aesthetic chemical ones no you don't want to be using them in the heat as far as planting things for flowers oh yeah go ahead and plant salvias go ahead and plant vinca's. go ahead and plant begonias it's certainly not too hot uh, to get some more color going out there and still it's okay to plant trees and shrubs you're going to need to watch your watering initially uh, just remember to water very thoroughly when you water. When the soil's dry on the surface, water thoroughly again. Spray up and down the trunks and stems of plants to help them get a little bit uh, of a head start. But uh, we, we can certainly plant in the heat. Just don't just don't water too often. But uh, perennials, golly, the different salvias, cufias, things like that. No reason to have a dull yard at this time of the year.